Welcome to the Vicky Girl Travels Podcast, the show for Black women who want more out of life and to live it as they see fit. The message here is all about defying convention, embracing adventure, and regretting absolutely nothing. I'm your host, Adelia Borchade of PickyGirlTravelsTheWorld.com. My guest today has a very, very unconventional path uh, to the life that she has now, a life she loves, a life of ease. I think her story, or at least some part of it, is going to resonate with each and every one of you. Okay. Um, thank you for joining me today, Malika. Um, I, You and I have had multiple conversations. Most recently, I was a guest on your YouTube channel where we yeah, talked yeah. about financial independence for Black women. And I think that's probably how you first came across my radar uh, as a Black woman who achieved FIRE. Um, and here and there, I've gotten little snippets of your story. Um, so let's let's start with who you are now. You know, tell the people who you are. Ooh, I feel like I'm in a job interview. <laughs> you know I'm allergic to work, so. <laughs> but no, um, my name is Malika. I go by the name of Money Coach Malika Online. Uh, I am the founder and financial coach of Fabulous Financials, and it is my life work, my mission now to help Black women learn to invest with ease. And I say with ease intentionally because a lot of people think investing is complicated, investing is too hard and too time consuming. There are types of investments can, that can be all of those things, but there are also ways to invest with ease. So I teach black women to invest with ease so they can build up their investment portfolio and live whatever they love. Okay. And so y'all heard her say invest with ease. So you already know, like she is on the vibe that we are on here. Um, but this is you, I feel like you're like so accomplished and, and all put together, but this is not who you have always been. And it's, it's not who I am now. <laughs> I'm not all put together. Wait a minute. Start over. Time out. <laughs> Let's be real. No, I am not all put together. I am very focused on the things I want out of life. And my mission right now, because it's a passion of mine, is helping Black women. But it doesn't mean that everything is all put together. Absolutely not. I have lots of stories to tell. Where would you like me to begin? <laughs> okay. One of the stories I would like you to tell us a little bit about is I have heard you mention this a couple of times that you were a teen mom. Yes, yes, yes. I um, became a mom at 17. I was a senior in high school and I graduated, walked across the stage and received my high school diploma, almost nine months pregnant. I delivered my daughter about three and a half weeks after high school graduation. <laughs> so yeah, my adult life started on a very rocky road. <laughs> you know, I had all these plans to go to college. I had already been accepted 
you know, by your senior year, you've already been accepted. You've already been awarded scholarships. And my life took a, a little detour. I used to consider it a, a left turn down the wrong road, but no, I just took a little detour. That's all. And it took me a little longer to get to where I am now, but that's okay. I'm here. And that's another thing I like to let black women know is you can make mistakes. You can start over. You can even start late. That does not change anything. You can still realize your dreams, whatever they are. Absolutely. Cause I feel low key. I started late. I, I have mentioned on this podcast many a time that I didn't really start to live my life um, intentionally, very much the first half of my life, pre 40 years old. Um, I just, I was in a survival mode. I lived in such a way that I just took what came. I never thought about like, what do I want? How do I want to live? That sort of thing. So we definitely don't believe in anything like being too late or being too old. Now I want to back up just a little bit. You graduate high school, you are nine months pregnant and the plans that you have made for where you want to go to school, like all of that is up in the air. How, how did you navigate that? Because I'm looking at you now and mm -hmm. I know that you retired early. You are a seven figure, seven figure investor. Like I know that version of you mm -hmm. and I can't help but think about 17 year old Malika who if she, I would think, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, if she had those visions, finding herself pregnant, maybe felt like, well, all of that's out of the window. Yeah. Um, forgive me in advance if I get a little emotional, um, but I don't mind uh, being transparent. That's actually what I like to do uh, to help Black women realize that you can achieve whatever you want, no matter what's happening in life. But um, I had a vision for what I wanted out of life, but it wasn't as clear as achieving financial independence and retiring early. It, I didn't have that type of clarity, but I had a vision just based on the typical American dream, you know, go to college, get an education, establish a career. You know, I had all of those dreams. Um, I was born into a family of poverty, poverty. You know, I grew up in the inner, inner city of New Jersey. So all of the things I saw in my environment at the time, I just wanted something different. And at the time I thought going to college was my pathway to something different. And then when I got pregnant, my family was very disappointed uh, because I was going to be the one that did something different, you know? Um, it disappointed me that I disappointed my family, um, but I couldn't think about me anymore. I was now responsible for another human being. So I had to think about how to take care of her. I didn't know how <laughs> I was going to do that. I didn't know, um, I just didn't know. I just did the best I could each day um, my college dreams went out the window. Initially, initially my college dreams went out the window. Um, I went on welfare. 
I was on welfare for the better part of about 10 years. I was on welfare. Um, when she was about two years old, I tried to go back to school. I thought I was ready. I thought I could, but I flunked out <laughs> my first attempt at um, going to college. I flunked out. Just dealing with all the stressors of life, dealing with all the responsibilities of parenting, parenting on your own. Her father was somewhat around her first two, three years of her life, but we were young, immature. It didn't work out. We were not good life partners. Um, so taking care of her was completely my responsibility. So when I attempted to go back to school, well, attempted to enroll in school, not go back, this was my first attempt, um, I flunked out. I wasn't focused, I wasn't ready. And to be honest, I didn't have the support that I needed to do both. So again, I had to redirect my focus on what was best for my daughter. So I decided to just work. I was working little jobs here and there, um, making sure I wasn't impacting my welfare too much, uh, <laughs> making sure I wasn't making too much money because I didn't want my benefits to be cut. I was in a survival mode mentality for about 10 years. And it was normal for me because I knew no other way. That's what I saw and that's the life I lived for a while. Okay. And so you obviously were able to pivot, change direction and become what I think by, and we've, we've I was going to say, and become successful by most people's like definition of that. Although on this channel, on this podcast, we're very much about defining success for yourself. But I don't think anybody would argue that you were able to become successful as we consider that in the U.S. I would even venture to say that, yeah, you like achieve the American dream. Um, do you remember how that happened? If there was a moment or was it kind of gradual? It was most certainly a moment. <laughs> it was definitely a moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was most certainly a pivotal moment. Um, as I mentioned, I was on welfare for almost 10 years. And when you're on welfare, you have to be recertified every year and you have to almost like reapply all over again, um, answer a lot of questions about what you're doing with your life. So I had my annual recertification appointment with the social worker, by the way, social workers that are supposed to be empathetic and support you and <laughs> help you to transition <laughs> in life. Uh, but this social worker, uh, unfortunately, or lucky for me, depends on how you look at it, uh, she was very um, harsh. And she said to me during the appointment, um, when are you gonna get a real job and take care of your own child? And it's a memory that is very vivid in my mind. It's so vivid. It, when I say that, it's almost like I just heard it all over again. And that question did two things for me. Number one, she was reminding me that I was nothing but a statistic. She was reminding me that in her eyes, I was the typical black, poor, single mother on welfare and would never amount to anything. 
whether she meant it that way or not, that's what I heard. And number two, what that did for me, because of the way I received her question, it put a fire under my butt because not only by this time, I was enrolled in school again, but I was working work study around my class schedule and I was working a part-time job and I was taking care of my child. As far as I was concerned, taking care of her, she was safe, she was loved, she was nurtured. So because that wasn't good enough for her and she reminded me of what I was in the eyes of, it lit a fire under me. And I decided in that moment that I was gonna get off welfare, but when I did, I was not gonna do it in her time in the way she wanted me to do it. When I got off of welfare, I wanted to make sure I was getting off of the welfare rolls permanently and I would never look back and I would achieve all my goals. And once I got out of that rut, I would reach back and help other women do the same thing. I hear you say that and I cannot help but think like I kind of figured where the story was going to go, that that was going to be partially fuel for you to do that, which is inspiring and all of that. But at the same time, I can't help but hear that and think in that moment, had she been kind, like. I think the same thing could have been achieved there and that, yeah, she's probably overworked, underpaid, stressed and all that, but still like, she'll know your life. She'll know what you're going through. Like we're, we should always like, no, I, I firmly believe what, when you are dealing with people in whatever manner in your life, always lead with kindness. Like, cause you don't know you don't know what they're going through. You don't know. And she doesn't know, like saying those words to you in that way, the impact, the visceral, because I can still see it now. We talking about what, 30 years, 20 yes. years ago. So <laughs> to do 30 math. years ago. And look <laughs> how, how raw it still is when I yes. think about it. <laughs> yes. And and that's why I am, I, I guess I've always been somebody with words, the the weight that words have. And it's probably because I was somebody who was talked to crazy by a lot of folks. So I have very much lived my life in, I only say things I mean. And when I say something, I make sure it's something I can mean because uh, words are such powerful things. And so, you know, whoever it is you're dealing with, like lead with kindness. Cause I don't know. I'm, I'm pissed off right now for that Malika, having to hear that nonsense from that woman. Yeah. And back then that was 19 year old Malika. By then that was 19 year old Malika. Yes. Yeah. And it, so, it made me angry. And I think my anger became my motivation. Not that I wasn't motivated before then or just sitting on my butt and sitting home doing nothing. It just lit a fire under me and it expedited my efforts. It expedited my desires. I was so angry. And, okay. And so you went, you went to school, you got a, I don't want to say got a job. Did you get a career? Um, you know, 
Because mm-hmm. I'm still trying to fill in the blocks here. Yeah, yeah. And I'll I'll try to fill in as, as much as I can and feel free to make me backtrack again if I need to. Um, I ended up enrolling in the community college. I enrolled in a community college because my first attempt at going to school, my first time flunking out, I, I'm so ashamed to say this, but I'll say it anyway. I accumulated almost $15,000 in student loan debt. Okay, from- I'm going to stop you right there. I'm going to stop you right there because you shouldn't be ashamed of that because that, that wasn't you. That's a system that is structured to take advantage of student lending is predatory the way we do it in the United States. Maybe somebody in some other country does it in such a way that it is not, but in the U S it is because you at that age, had you gone and applied for a business loan of 15 grand, nobody would have given it to you. You wouldn't have been able to even get a car loan for that without a a cost. You know what I'm saying? Nope. So you, <laughs> no. I'm, 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 I, I, I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to exempt you from that. You don't need to feel guilty or ashamed about that because that wasn't you. That was a that. system, you that. know, taking yeah. advantage of you. And there was something else I thought about as soon as you reminded me about that you had flunked out support. I think that is something we we don't think about what small things we can do that can still provide people support. And as adults, and that's mostly who's listening to this, who's watching this, um, you ain't got to go in and like boost up somebody's whole life. But there are small things we can do to support each other. And I think as I hear your story unfold, I think about had there been a little bit more support here, a little bit more support there, like what difference could that have made in in your life, in other people's lives? You know what I'm saying? It would have made the world of difference. It would have made the world a difference. Now, I do not regret any of my experiences because that's what got me to where I am today, right? But if I had more support, not only would I have been able to do what I eventually did with less stress, but when you're a single mother and you're stressed, your children feel that stress too. Your children embody your stress too. And that can cause unintended consequences. So having support, not only does it help the parent, it helps the children too. I just think we, especially black women, Oh Lord, very much. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't, I told you, I don't be knowing where this conversation is going, but how many of us, how many of us have been like, I'm just going to do it myself. Or we even hesitate to ask for the help because so many times there hasn't been the support there. There hasn't been somebody just to give you a damn kind word versus telling you, girl, when you going to get a real job and take care of that baby? And often our reaction, our response is, well, fine, I will do it myself. My, I have this issue with my oldest daughter all the time about not asking for yes. help. And yes, 
technically we can do it ourselves, but we shouldn't have to. We shouldn't have to. It literally takes a village. That's so cliche, but it does. On on an earlier podcast episode, uh, Ivana and I were talking about that. We often hear about the village when it comes to raising children. Mm -hmm. And our argument is everybody needs a village. Even grown-ass 48-year-old women, we need a village. Now we need a village, yes. And I'm so grateful that you are part of my village. Yes, we need a village. Very welcome. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I interrupted you. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. Where were we? Okay, we were talking about like, um, okay, so you graduated school, you got a professional job. Oh, yeah. So I went to the community college first. And the reason why I mentioned that is because I want more of us in the black community to know that community college is an option. You do not have to go to these expensive schools and accumulate and bury yourself in all of this debt just to get a degree. I went to a community college first. I earned a two year associate's degree in my major. I did not accumulate any student loan debt during that two years because I was eligible for the Pell Grant. I earned a few scholarships. Um, And there were a few things that I was doing, like work study, that was helping to uh, compensate for some of the tuition. So two years of no student loan debt, that makes a world of difference. I accumulated 14,000 in the first attempt when I flunked out, right? And was that one semester? I didn't even finish. (laughs) I didn't even finish the semester. (laughs) Okay. Let's be honest. Okay, so I share that because I want more of us to know community college is okay. Now, I understand that the HBCUs is a thing. I understand that Ivy League is something you strive for. While those things are important for networking and you know meeting people in your first two years, you don't need all that. You can do that in the last two years, it's okay. But to I, go I want to just years. stop you right there. I know I'm gonna get in trouble. Everybody's gonna be talking about it. you. Just kept interrupting her, but mm-hmm. you just said something really important that I want to emphasize. Mm-hmm. You can still do that if the dream is I want to attend this prestigious HBCU. If the dream is I want to attend this Ivy, you can still do that. You can still do that after getting. Uh, you uh, a degree at a community college, your path, this idea that it's got to be four years immediately after I graduate high school, that's just one option. That's just one path. Yes. Everybody is different. So everybody's path can also be different. Yes. Yes. So save yourself that two years of student loans, go to a community college first. And then I transfer those credits over to a four year school to complete my bachelor's degree. And I got the same four-year degree in business and finance that I would have had I went to the four-year, went to the four-year school from day one, but I graduated with less debt because I did the community college first. Um, But yes, after uh, I graduated with my bachelor's degree, which I did not finish until I was almost 30, by the way, 
all of my peers had completed their degrees. They had moved on with their lives and I'm still trucking along doing little by little, <laughs> you know, taking one class here, taking, you know, two or three classes there. I wasn't full time the entire time. Again, my daughter was my priority. Um, but when I finally completed my degree, I was almost 30. Um, and I started um, working what was my first real job. And I'm only using that term because of the social worker. <laughs> I don't believe in real jobs or non-real jobs. But um, my first professional job was at the state level. And I got the job through, um, what was I doing? Oh, I worked at a temporary agency. I worked at a temporary agency and then was hired on permanently. And then I continued to advance my career at higher, higher levels. When we started this conversation and with your high school graduation, we talked about the dreams and aspirations you had, which were very much in line with the American dream. And so I'm going to guess that this is when you set about to start, you know, ticking the things off that we're supposed to do when we are, quote unquote, successful in the U.S. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I started ticking the things off when I got that bachelor's degree because I did it as a mom and nobody thought I would. Everyone counted me out because they thought I would be a statistic and on welfare for the rest of my life. So that was my first check. <laughs> Okay, that was my first check. I wish, I wish I could see that social worker today. <laughs> I promise you I do. <laughs> I'm not the type of person that get revenge, but she is one person in my life I wish I could see today. <laughs> but uh, no, the, that bachelor's degree was that first check for the American dream, along with the student loan debt. <laughs> Let's not forget that. That comes with the package, right? And yeah, getting my my first professional career with the salary and benefits that was that was that that next check where I could say, okay, I'm not a statistic. I've made it, whatever that means that I don't subscribe to anymore. But yeah, okay. And you just said something important. You said I don't subscribe to anymore. And so this is where I think your story, my story, the story of so many of us. Um, kind of line up. So, you know, we are working, we are accumulating, we are like, I got to buy the house, I got to get the car, I've got to do these things. Now, um, you ultimately go on to be very successful in your career. But I know you now as this person who is retired mm -hmm. and <laughs> living, embracing ease. Yes. And so I want to kind of fast forward a little bit um, mm -hmm. to talk about that. Like when, when I was on your channel, we talked about FIRE, uh, financial independence, retire early is the traditional way of looking at that. You weren't actively working toward FIRE. Not initially. Not initially. Okay. That's, that's what I thought. Yeah. Um, but talk to me about like, when you started to think about or contemplate, like, I don't have to continue to work here until I am in my 60s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I wasn't always focused on fire as a goal, but I have always been um, what you would consider financially literate. Um, 
primarily because I was the sole breadwinner in my family and the only parent my daughter had. So every decision I made in life was based on what would be in her best interest and what would make her life easier because I didn't want her to struggle the way I did. So I managed my money in a way to benefit her. Um, but I was conditioned and subscribed to that hustle and grind culture. You know, I was very career driven, career focused, getting the promotions, increasing my salary, um, maximizing that salary. So as my salary would increase, I would have more money to invest. And I was of the mindset, invest for my daughter. What changed my focus from not only investing for my daughter, but just reevaluating life and the hustle and grind and my own freedom and my own joy. I was working on a major project. Uh, I used to, I don't talk too much about my career online and, and what I did uh, for privacy reasons and also for, for some of the ethical standards that I'm still held still bound to, but um, I was negotiating a major multi-billion dollar contract. And I worked very, very closely with uh, the team that I was leading. I remember working late one day after meeting with uh, one of the VPs of the organization we was working with to establish this contract. And it was myself, an engineer, and the program manager in my office probably until eight, nine o'clock at night trying to come up with our counter offer to negotiate this deal. And the program manager left my office and went home. This was a Friday. Monday I was off, I came back to work on Tuesday morning. No one told me until I was getting ready to leave Tuesday evening that when he left my office on Friday, he had a heart attack at the train station and he was dead. We had been working on this project for several months. It was very stressful, a lot of pressure, a lot of visibility. Everyone wanted us to get it done. We had a deadline. We had a schedule that we were already behind. So all of us was under a lot of pressure. This man had a heart attack. I was the last one he saw on the train tracks on his way home to his family on a Friday. This was Tuesday evening. No one told me. Someone that I had been working closely with for weeks, months, no one told me until Tuesday evening that he was dead. And in the context of the conversation, when they told me, they also asked, so do you think you'll still get the deal completed on schedule? I hope that I, when you said, do you know what they asked me? I was like, hopefully this is not it. But yeah, they asked what I thought they would. Wow. Wow. That changed everything for me. I was not offered any grief counseling. Well, let me be fair. I was the next day in that moment, 
the question was, so do you think you'll still be able to get it on time? He will be replaced and you should have a replacement by the end of the week. The project couldn't continue without a program manager. He was going to be replaced and they were asking me, would I complete the project on time? The next day I was asked if I wanted grief counseling. I was sent a link via email, but by then I had already processed what happened the day before and I was starting to mentally check out. That let me know these employers don't care about you. These jobs ain't loyal. <laughs> you, to them, you. you are, I don't want to say nothing, but you're definitely replaceable. So this system is, um, the system does not care about us. No, not at all. Um, I did not address the question until probably a week later. I was not gonna give them the satisfaction <laughs> and the relief. And when I finally addressed the question, I asked to be reassigned. I no longer wanted to work the project. I probably could have done it. I probably could have done it on time. In fact, that's what I was known to do. That's why I was able to be promoted so quickly. Um, and I was able to you know, earn the salary that I had and do all the things and have the reputation that I had in my career because I fixed things. I could have done that then too. And I decided I don't wanna do this anymore. Um, so I asked to be reassigned and Thankfully, my, my reputation worked to my advantage uh, when my boss's boss found out that I wanted to be assigned and why. They were like, yes, we'll do it. Um, and I just consulted on the project and I was reassigned to something that was a little less stressful, um, a little more easygoing, uh, less pressure, no high visibility. So I just kind of laid low and coasted for a while. And because my mentality was shifting, it also gave me the mental space to plan my exit strategy. Stephanie Perry often talks about needing time off from work, needing space so that you can do that. And it sounds like you were able to <laughs> kind of like quietly quit <laughs> before you actually did. Before quiet quitting was a thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, you, you, there were a couple of things you said there that stood out to me. You talked about like, I could have finished the project. I could, I probably could have gotten it done on time. And I often feel like women in particular get very caught up. Well, I can do this thing, so I'm going to do it. I should not do I want to Exactly. because there are so many times that I know I personally, instead of before I learned to really say no, um, if I could do a thing, I felt that I had to. And just because you have the ability or the capacity to do something doesn't mean you have to. Because if you don't want to do it, you don't, you shouldn't have to. You know, you can say, I don't want to do this because I don't want to do this. 
And and yeah. let's be honest, sometimes we will we will do it even if we don't want to for the accolades, for the kudos, um, because sometimes we can be people pleasers. Um, and black women specifically, we tend to put other people's desires and needs before our own. So we say yes and do it anyway at our own expense. But that was my first time saying I could, but I'm not. For you. Now, interesting, you said just now, was the other thing I was going to touch on about um, sometimes doing things that we don't want to do for the benefit of other people. And earlier, you were saying that one of the things that was driving you, um, I'm playing in the background, was making sure that things were different for your daughter, investing for your daughter being financially sound for your daughter. Now, I am, I'm curious about this at the same time. Um, like did for you, was that like, I am going to put myself in such a great financial situation that whatever goes on with her, like she won't have to be in the situation I was where I didn't have the financial support or were you one of those parents who was putting their own financial well-being at risk because of what they wanted to do for the children? No, the latter, no. Um, more so the former. I, I wanted my daughter to have a easier life than I had. I, I, I feel like I struggled so she wouldn't have to. That, that was my, my mindset. Um, I, I probably raised a brat, <laughs> uh, a spoiled brat, but I wanted her to have all the things I never had, right? Um, I did not compromise my own needs to benefit my daughter. And I'm so glad you asked me that question because that is one of the things that I always say when I'm speaking to an audience or I'm coaching my clients, because a lot of people, a lot of women, especially single parents, they think I have to save for my child, I have to save for my child, and they're not putting anything in their own retirement accounts. Or they want to save for their child's college expenses because they don't want their children to graduate with debt, which I completely understand, but they do it at the expense of not putting any money in their own 401k. So if that, that was part. your second yes, question, that, no, that yes. was not okay. me at all. <laughs> because um, one of the things that I am known for saying is telling women, particularly black women, to be selfish. Okay, to choose you, put you first. And because a lot of the programming we get is you have to sacrifice for your child. And there is validity to that, you know, making sure that you provide for your child if that means you have to go without something. But like you gave the example, folks want to avoid the debt for their children. So much, and they feel like I've got to be able to pay for college outright. And the way that they're doing that is foregoing their own retirement savings. Mm -hmm. I see in my line of work, I see so many women who are like, I'm 50 and there's nothing saved. Nothing, right. You know, I'm 55 
and I don't think I'm going to be able to retire. And you have, when it comes to your retirement, you have far less time than as you've proven, like you can get a bachelor's degree and be 30. You've, you, we, we, cause I'm gonna count myself in that. Like we're on the tail end of our time here. So the time we have to save for retirement is a lot more limited than the time uh, a young person has to figure out how to get their education. And so uh, anytime I can point that out or remind women of that, Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to I like to do so. So I just wanted to to clarify that. Yeah, and and I would like to add one more thing to that. Um, as a single mother, I understand the woman's perspective who wants to put their child first. I understand the sacrifices that women make, and the things that they compromise for their children. Um, So I don't necessarily see saving and investing for your own retirement as selfish. I actually see that as another way of putting my child first. Now hear me out. I know where you're going with this and you're right. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm still putting my child first. So if you are a woman who thinks you have to help your child with college or you need to help your child um, with their savings account and you're not doing anything for yourself, I invite you to consider this reframe. If you are not saving for your own retirement, whether it's your 401k or your IRA, and you are funneling all of your money to accounts to help your child right now. Think about where you are in your life. You and I, Adelia, we're we're in that sandwich generation, I would say, where we have our children, no matter how old our children are, we are always gonna be moms (laughs) and they're always gonna need us for something, right? And then we also have aging parents, right? So my mom just, retired. She's retirement age. She she even calls herself a senior citizen now, but she's aging. And the reality of her aging is in my face. And I understand what that means for me. So if my mom didn't save anything for her retirement because she was looking out for my best interests, now that I'm in this sandwich, sandwich generation, I have a daughter to take care of. If I also had to take care of her too, and it spread my finances thin, is that looking out for my best interests? So if you are saving for your child, if you are putting all your money into your child so they can go to school and graduate without debt, and you're not putting any money into your investment account, when your child becomes an adult and get their, establish their career, maybe they'll become married and then have their own children, they're not thinking about you. Their responsibilities is on their own children. But as you're aging, and then when you become retirement age, if you have nothing saved for yourself, who are you going to rely on? Your child. So then you're going to become an extra burden to your child when your child has his or her own family, his or her own children. 
you are going to become a burden to that child. That's not looking out for your child's best interests. So consider saving for your own retirement account as another way you take care of your child so your child won't have the stress of taking care of you. Now, if our children want to take care of us, want to do things for us, that's different. But if you put them in a position where they have to, that's a burden. Don't do that to your children. No. Yes. Uh, and that has been one of the things that has driven me in, especially my financial decisions, like in the last decade, is I help where I can. But what's very important to me is that they aren't, you know, in their mid 20s, early 30s, and having to figure out how to take care of their children plus support me on top of that. That right. to me is unfair. Yes. Uh, and I don't want to do that to them because technically that was me and it, it wasn't cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uncool, not one bit. Yeah. I'm glad my mom has put money aside. I will help her, but I will help her because I want to, not because I have to, you know. So her little retirement yeah. check may not be enough to, you know, travel or to get her hair done and her nails done. Oh, mind, you know give mama a couple of dollars to get her hair done, but I don't want to have to pay her rent. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah. So no, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is, that is very important. Okay. Right. So you had, you had this, this moment where, okay, you basically, you were like, okay, I need to start figuring out my exit because they've shown me, you know, they've shown you who they are and how they feel about you. So was the plan to just like become in, in a place financially where you didn't have to work? Were you thinking full on fire? Like, oh, that's what I'm going to do. Or what, what were you thinking? What was, what were the beginnings of this financial shift that you were making? Yes. At that point, I was full on fire. Um, I didn't know what my fire number was. So the first thing I did was run the numbers. And as you know, fire is a factor of your expenses. So you take your monthly expenses time 12 to get your annual expenses. You take your annual expenses time 25. Boom. There's the number. I started focusing on that number. I wanted to be full on fire. Um, by the time I run the numbers and realize where I was, I had always tracked my net worth, but I had never tracked it against my fire number. Your fire number doesn't include, include things like your rental properties and, and things like that. It, I only track for fire my invested assets, money that you can live on. Um, and I was actually closer than I realized. And I had made a decision that I wanted to get to the number by a certain date. So I made some very risque, well, not risque decisions. I made decisions that would be difficult for the average person, right? By then my daughter had already gone off to college. So it was just me. So she was no longer living at home. And I decided to reduce my expenses significantly. When I focus on reducing expenses. It's not cutting out the $5 latte. <laughs> it's not round bagging my lunch to go to work. <laughs> I am not going to stop going to happy hour seeing 
to see my friends. All that little piddly stuff. Mm -mm. When I make a decision that I want to do something, I think about what's the fastest way I can do it and the easiest way I can do it. And I know when it comes to expenses, we have three major expenses, our housing, our transportation, and our food. Which one of those do you want to cut, Malika? I like to eat. It wasn't going to be the food. My car was already a relatively frugal car. I drove a 2004 Honda Accord. That was my baby for many, many years. So I couldn't really cut my um, transportation expenses. And I lived in the DC area and I rode the train pretty much to work all the time. So the next thing to consider on the chopping block was my housing. So at the time I lived in the DC area, the DMV, but the metropolitan area that was close to the train station, you know, in a excellent location. And you know, anything about metro cities, it's all about location. And the more convenient your location, the more expensive it's going to be, right? Um, I decided to move further outside of the city. So I did not compromise my quality of life. I did not compromise my standard of living. I decided to move outside of the city to reduce my expenses. So I moved from a very, very large uh, home that was close to the city to a smaller one bedroom home that was outside of the city limits. So there was no train, there were buses and like commuter lots and things like that, but there was no train. So that reduced my monthly expenses by uh, what, well over $500 a month. Boom, right there. You don't have to cut out Starbucks, you don't have to cut out happy hour, change one thing, reduce my expenses by $500 a month. It was probably more than that, but I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. That was perfect for me. I invested all of the difference because I was in the mindset, I wanna achieve this number, I wanna get here by this date, and I'm ready to make it happen. I was tunnel focused and nothing was gonna stop me. So yeah, that's how I started the process. And at this point, you, were assuming that you would fire and be in the U.S.? Or had you already started contemplating uh, a life outside of the States? No. Um, at that point, I just wanted the option to not work. I hadn't considered what I was going to do once I got to the other side yet. I just wanted the option to not work. So, you know, I guess I should say I was really more focused on the FI part of mm -hmm. FIRE, not really RE. I wanted the option to not work. And that's so important because when you're FI, <laughs> baby. That is the power of F you money. Baby, Let me tell your, you. your, your stride stank. You hear me? <laughs> <laughs> The way you navigate the world changes. <laughs> yes, it does. The way people get to talk to you <laughs> change. What do you mean I can't? Because oh, I ain't got to be here. <laughs> are you sure about that? <laughs> you start asking for things that other people are afraid to ask for because what's the worst can happen? What they going to do? Say no? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I really wanted the option to not have to work. Initially, I hadn't considered living outside the United States. I was a free, I've always been a frequent traveler. Um, I had traveled, I would say, 
could be 10 times a year. I would take, you know, little short trips here and there, not the slow travel like I do now, but I would take like four or five day trips, week long trips. In December, I would take like a two week trip for my birthday, but I would travel at least, I would say eight to 10 times a year. And remember mm-hmm. that time when glitch fares was a thing yes, and you could get the $250 flight to I South Africa? those days. <laughs> yes, I was in that, <laughs> that population that was gallivanting all over the world. So I've always traveled but I hadn't considered the thought of living abroad yet. But I just knew I wanted the option to not work if I didn't want to and to travel whenever I wanted to without asking for permission. And so the day came where you, you had the money, you had reached the number. I had reached the number. I reached the number in 20, 17, 2018. And then I actually, I actually, I was sent, I was about to say the pandemic happened. That's coming next. When I first reached my number, I actually had some personal health issues that in hindsight made me double down on fire. Um, had health issues, had surgery on my spine. Um, end up taking a lot of time off work. Uh, the recovery process was very difficult. Um, once I recovered, I really experienced what it was like to not work for an extended period of time. I was like, oh, <laughs> this is kind of nice. It is a gateway drug. <laughs> I, it is. I think I was out of work. With the first surgery, I was out of work about six months. I had two back-to-back surgeries on my spine. The second surgery, I was out for almost a year. Um, Well, no, I was out for another six months and I worked from home for another six months. So out of the office for almost a year. So I started working from home before working from home became a thing uh, due to my health issues. I got to give my job credit. It was very, very flexible. Whatever I needed, whatever I asked for, they did provide. They were very flexible. Um, so that delayed my plans a little bit. But after all of my personal issues resolved, my health improved, I recovered, I was back on it. I'm like, yeah, I'm really doing this fire thing now. And I was scared. <laughs> I was scared to leave. <laughs> and I know we're going to get into that because you're going to get Yeah, me. we are. But, but what saved me? Then the pandemic happened. <laughs> and then I had a reason to stay. Because <laughs> I couldn't travel anyway. <laughs> so so let's let's talk about that because I, I find gonna this get me. so interesting <laughs> that you know because a lot of people, myself included, have you know fantasized when there's like a big mega millions Powerball thing. Like, what would you do if you won all this money? And Many of us are like, oh, well, I'd quit my job. <laughs> well, you didn't win the lottery, but you had, you'd done the math, you'd run the numbers, you knew what your financial independence number was. Mm-hmm. You reached it. And by but, then, because I had more time, I'd reach Fatfire too. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm not helping my case, right? <laughs> yeah, no, you're not. Okay. So 
Fat Fire, for the folks that don't know, as she mentioned, Fire, when you're figuring out like how much money do I need to have saved and invested, it's really a function of your expenses. And when she says she had enough saved for Fat Fire, that's for some pretty hefty exp expenses. So we're not talking about she would quit working and have to sit at home and eat tuna and clip coupons. That is not what we're talking about here. So money was not the issue. It wasn't. But I think, I, and the reason I want to talk about this is because so many of us, we think, okay, well, if I had more money, I would do this. And that really, to me, begs the question, how much more do you need? How much is enough? You had enough, but yet you still struggled to, to pull a lever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think it was because of the money, though. Money wasn't driving my decisions anymore. I had already checked the box and I knew I was work optional and I could leave at any time. Um, my mind was still conditioned to believe the American dream. My mind was still conditioned to believe some of the lies that our society ingrains in us from early on. I questioned um, health insurance. Where would I get health insurance? Uh, I thought health insurance was expensive. The I worked at my employer for over 20 years and the benefits were excellent. I had heard of people you know, with health insurance having an emergency, a medical procedure, and I had just experienced a medical emergency myself, my out-of-pocket cost was like less than $200. I had two major surgeries and my neurosurgeon was associated with John Hopkins Hospital, the best. That's some really good insurance you had. <laughs> right? So <laughs> I was afraid of what a medical emergency would do. Would it wipe out all of my wealth because I had a pre-existing condition? Um, I was afraid of what life would look like. Okay, I, this number says I can based on this study, based on this formula, but can I really, because the United States had planted all these seeds of fear, we have to work until we're whatever number. We have to have health insurance and in order, in order to have good health insurance, it needs to be tied to an employer. So all of those thoughts planted seeds of doubt in my head and made me question, could I really do it and be okay? So I was scared to take the leap. So what changed? You all came along. <laughs> Um, life after early retirement or uh, being a digital nomad, like the words that were common and the words that I was familiar with, I would Google those words because um, I wanted to see how other people were making it. I, I needed to visualize what life would be like. And I would, al I also wanted to see other people with like pre-existing conditions. So I would do a lot of Googling, do a lot of YouTubing, and just watch other people, um, not only for inspiration,
but I needed that information and that validation and the resources to let me know these are some things to consider to give you the courage to take the leap. You know, there was still so much I didn't know. I had the money, but taking that leap is a lot more than money. It's it's a lot more than money. There was still so much I didn't know about detaching myself from an employer, um, about life on the other side of fire. So through the YouTube rabbit hole, I came across Stephanie Perry first. And I think my first video of hers, oh my goodness, what was the first video? I, I can't, I know the first video I saw of yours. I can't remember the first video of Stephanie's, but I remember binge watching her channel. And she just introduced a thought. She planted a seed in my mind that you can do this. You can be free. You don't need that job, girl. You can live, <laughs> you can live wherever you want in the world. Not only is it cheaper, but your money will go further. So that made me think, okay, if my money can go further, even if health insurance is more expensive, I can then afford it because I'll have more money. Because my fire number was based on my expenses in the United States, living in the DC area. So Stephanie planted the seed. If I moved abroad, it was not only cheaper, but less stressful. You know, the, the culture was more welcoming, you know, for us. And I was just thinking, so I will have more money to pay for the expensive medical procedures. Um, but as I kept digging and digging, digging, then I came across your channel and my first video of yours that I watched was exactly what I needed. Health insurance, <laughs> living abroad. I was like, yo, the algorithm did what the algorithm was supposed to do. <laughs> there you go. And I would binge watch your channel and I would take notes. I was taking notes and the more I learned from you, well, both of you, the more I learned from both of you, it made me realize I could do this and there was nothing to be afraid of. So it was just a matter of time and overcoming the pandemic. Well, you know, I we were just having this conversation yesterday or maybe it was even this morning about how much is enough. Like yeah. there's so much. I feel like in American culture, like we're encouraged to save, but it's kind of like this indefinite thing. Like you're there's you're just supposed to keep saving. There's not ever really a point that you're actually supposed to use that money. Right. And it's a two part message. Not only are we supposed to save, but you are supposed to save out of fear because everything is so expensive and the United States is the best country in the world. So you wanna be here, but you need a lot of money to afford it. Yes. So the message goes together, saving and the fear. They plant both of those seeds. And so it, it does make me wonder, and I, I think about this in other people's situation, like how do we define enough? Like for you in your situation, having existing medical issues and being able to handle that and not deplete everything like that, that figures into your enough number. Yeah. But it, it's also, I would even imagine that even after watching those videos and learning that there still was a little bit of 
can I, can I pull the trigger here? Like, because, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you decided to leave your employer, it wasn't, it wasn't a situation like something bad has happened. I wish I was in a financial situation and I'd walk out of here. Like things were fine. Things were fine. My employer was very supportive of my health issues, when I would request to be reassigned, when I would request to do something different, when I would request to go somewhere, when I would request to take this course or go to this conference, everything I've ever wanted to do, my employer was very accommodating. I did not hate my job, especially once I was reassigned to the easier job. I didn't hate my boss. I worked from home every day, didn't have to commute anymore. I was able to invest 70% of my income because my expenses were so low, I had great benefits. By all definitions, I had a great job and a perfect you live in the setup. American dream. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So how was that? Because I, I think so many of us, when we envision like storming off in a huff or whatever, it's because I hate this job or they have done something to me. Um, I don't think we rarely envision the conversation of leaving when things are good, when things are great, when you really have a cush setup. Yeah. Um, I knew I still wanted to go because I was no longer fulfilled in my career. I didn't want another job. Another job wouldn't have fixed what I was feeling internally. I just wasn't fulfilled at all. And part of my research when I found you and Stephanie, I was also researching like fulfillment in life. Um, what does joy mean? What does happiness mean? You know, it's not a feeling. I was searching for what I needed to fill the void. And I also came across some other uh, resources too. And I ended up hiring a coach um, to help me explore, you know, maybe a second career or what my passions are. I, I guess you can consider it a midlife crisis. I don't know. <laughs> And see, I think that calling it that, calling it a crisis, uh -huh. that makes it sound like it's a bad thing, a bad that it's thing. something yeah. that has to be fixed. Because if yeah. you think about the idea of a midlife crisis in the greater uh, in the greater situation of how we treat work <laughs> in the United States, mm -hmm. what that tells me that we've come up with this term of midlife crisis, that people get to a certain point at life and they look at it and like, there's got to be more to life than this. But when people start asking those questions, you don't want people to start asking questions and trying to unplug from the matrix. Mm -hmm. So you label what they're going through as a crisis. Yeah, as something negative. To be fixed. And yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then they work through it and they plug right back in. Right. So I would, I would not call what you were experiencing uh, a midlife crisis. I would definitely say, because you just said, um, I wasn't finding fulfillment in my job. And mm -hmm. I would argue a job is not supposed to provide that, but we've been told it is. Right. And and what I mean by that is, considering all the th things I just told you about my job, the setup I had, I literally just had to wake up, wash my face, brush my teeth, and open the laptop. 
I would call out sick. And that's how you know. <laughs> I knew, I knew something was wrong. I would take a vacation day just because. I wasn't depressed. I wasn't physically sick. I was just not fulfilled. And it's more of that could and should. Like you could, you could have stayed yeah, and continued to do that job. Yes. You could have. Yes, for the golden handcuffs. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but but that's not really what you should do because it obviously wasn't satisfying whatever needed to be done for you or you wouldn't be taking a day off just just cuz. Right. And that's the beauty of being phi, even if you choose not to RE when you start going through that phase of your life, you have the option to explore. You don't have to do anything for money. You have the freedom to explore whatever it is that you're feeling. And that's what I decided to do. I hired a coach and she's a financial coach. Even though I'm a financial coach, I also have a financial coach. I believe there's levels to this wealth game. Um, and she has an unorthodox approach to wealth. I, I didn't need help to build wealth, but her approach to wealth is based on the traditional meaning of wealth. And she believes that wealth is fulfillment and taking care of your health first, including your mental and physical health, building healthy relationships, um, your, making sure your environment is healthy, so after we take care of all of those priorities and we have the mental space to think and the fog is lifted, then we realize that a lot of times we're very creative, right? A lot of times we realize the things that bring us joy that we suppressed because we were thinking with this tunnel vision based on these predefined definitions of success that has been force fed to us and we forget what we really like. So she helped me to unpack all of that. And it was exactly what I needed. In addition to finding you and Stephanie, I redefined success for myself and I redefined what wealthy means to me. Still didn't take the leap in terms of a clean cut immediately. I went to my employer. Again, when you're five, you'll ask for anything. Because <laughs> that's the worst they can do, right? I went to my employer and I said, I need some time off. I wanted to explore what I was learning about myself. And then I also um, wanted to spend some time with my family because my mom was starting to go through some things and she was starting to reevaluate if she was ready to retire too. And um, my mom was in another state, so I needed to um, connect with her. And I took some time off that ended up being several months off. I requested it. There was a little bit of pushback, but I was prepared for it because if they said no, I was just gonna quit. I could. Um, but they came back, asked a few questions about why, because I wasn't sick, I wasn't, under medical care, you know, couldn't claim FMLA. Um, she asked a few questions. I answered her very honestly. And then she said, okay. 
So I actually took a six month leave of absence and I went to Mexico. <laughs> I went to Puerto Vallarta first because I just wanted to luxuriate on the beach and do nothing. Uh, spent some time with my family as well. Took care of some important priorities that I had been putting off. And that time off was... I don't mean to sound cliche, but it, it was magical. It was like the fog had lifted. It was like the air was clearer, more crisp. Um, I wasn't, the tension that I carried in my body, sometimes we're stressed and don't even realize we're stressed, but we carry the stress and the tension in our bodies, it relieved my nervous system, relaxed. It was like I was literally able to exhale. Um, and I loved it. I loved it. And I remember around month five, every now and then my boss would check in just to see how I was doing. And I will be honest, you know, with my responses to her. And there were some things I had to do to my computer every now and then so I wouldn't get locked out of the system. And she would just make sure I stayed connected. One time I did get locked out because I was just living my life, honey. I was thinking about that work computer. <laughs> One time I get, did get locked out and she had to get me back in. That was no problem. She's like, oh, no problem. I'll fix it. And um, it's about month five. She emailed me as she had been doing at least once a month, not too often. And she said, uh, do you have time for a quick chat? And I said, sure. And I knew what it was about because the six months was coming up. And um, we got on the call and she asked first how I was doing, how my mom was doing. Um, and she wanted to know if I had any idea when I would be coming back. And I told her I didn't know. I wasn't ready, I needed more time. And she said, as far as she was concerned, that was fine for me to take all the time I needed, but she had it to go up a higher level because of the position that they were holding for me to get permission. But she said she didn't think it would be a problem, but she would follow up with me. And then I said, okay, sure. Again, being fi, you don't care what other people yeah. decide. <laughs> I said, okay. And it was something about that conversation. It wasn't a, a contentious conversation. It was, she wasn't like trying to be my boss and tell me what to do. She was just, how are you doing? Checking in. Uh, are you coming back? Just curious. But it was something about our exchange that just reminded me of work <laughs> and just made me think about the idea of going back to work. And I wrote my resignation letter within an hour of getting off the phone with her, even though she had already told me it was okay. And she just had to double check. And knew. I, I knew, I knew it was time to go. I, I knew I wasn't going back because of how my body felt. Adelia, I was borderline high blood pressure when I was working. I was borderline. My doctor was threatening to put me on medication because of my cholesterol. I was borderline all the things, you know? And being away from work, 
I didn't change anything drastically. I wasn't on a diet. I've always walked in the morning. Walking is very therapeutic for me. I love, I call them my wealth walks. Um, so I still walked when I was in Mexico or wherever I was. And I still ate regular food, but I wasn't stress eating as much. I wasn't constantly reaching for the Cheetos and the Oreos, but I was eating regular food without feeling like I was restricting myself. My blood pressure came down. My cholesterol came down. My weight came like just magically all of these things changed. My sleep improved. I was no longer stressed on Sunday afternoon because I was thinking about what I had to do work. at work on Monday. It's like there were so many things that improved. I could not logically put myself back in that environment and say I loved myself. It just didn't make sense to me. And I'm like, I don't know where this is leading me in life, but I owe it to myself to explore it. And I'm the type of person, I don't believe that any decision is permanent. I believe the door is like a pendulum. It swings both ways. If in a year, five years, I decide, okay, I'm gonna go back to work now. I can always do that. But I owed it to myself to at least explore. That is one of the things that has made a big difference for me in choosing to live life on my own terms. Like if it doesn't work out, what is the worst that could happen? Like I have to go back and get a regular job. And that is not the end of the world. Like that's what I was doing before. So I know, I know our instinct, especially being in the U S is like, well, I won't be able to get a job that was as cush as my last position. Eh. I don't need it to be because <laughs> to me, that's not a reason to stay in those golden handcuffs. Right. You know, because had you stayed, had you never taken that time off, the the joy and the the ease that you experienced during that time in Mexico, you would have never had that. But I've never had it trying to play it safe and keep what you knew versus gambling on something else. Yeah. And um, let me tell you, honey. I vacationed a lot. When I say before the pandemic, I traveled a lot. A vacation is not enough. A vacation is not enough because you're taking the stress with you. Yes. That has been, you were saying how like the body knows, like that has been the biggest difference in this last eight years of my life is listening to how my body feels. Even if it's something as I walked into this cocktail party and I am noticing that my body is being anxious, there is tension that I don't, I don't ignore something as small as that. Because what my body is telling me is you don't want to be here. And so I'm going to listen and I'm going to leave whatever whatever the situation is and you can't really it's very hard to do that in the way i was living my life before because there just wasn't space for me to listen and hear in that way you need you need time and it takes time for the fog to clear 
And once that fog clears, then it's like a domino effect of all the other things that are physically released. It's like, I, I can't even describe it. It's, it's literally magical. I know that sounds well, so. It is. Simple. It is magical. It, it and really I, I, we, we should actually embrace using that word because like, it is. It's amazing. It, it, and it sounds very simple. And I guess magic can be very simple. Yeah. But it's, it's about having a focus that's more inward than outward. I guess I don't know. Yes. yes. It is all internal. It's internal. But when you are on that hamster wheel trying to chase that American dream and your mind is conditioned with all the beliefs that they feed us, you don't even pay attention to your internal. Everything that you do is based on external validation and external achievements. And you forget what's in here. You, you, you lose connection with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you do. So that, that leave of absence, it, it helped me to reconnect with myself. And I'm so glad you did. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I resigned the next week. <laughs> <laughs> what, did, what did your daughter make of all of this? My daughter thinks it's the funniest thing. <laughs> She thinks it's the funniest thing. But the way I've lived my life, I've always been a rule breaker. I've always been risque. I've always been a little rogue. And I always do things that are not what is considered traditionally acceptable. So she wasn't too surprised. <laughs> I don't even think my mom was surprised. In fact, when I told my mom I was going to resign, she was her reaction was so non-reactive. It was like, mom, did you hear what I just said? <laughs> and I think my family are just used to me doing un unusual things. <laughs> I, I think that's how you know you're doing what you're supposed to do is when the reaction is a non-reaction where it's like, yeah, that, that, that seems on brand. It as actually made me angry at first though. <laughs> Because I'm like, Ma, did you just hear me? <laughs> I'm about to make one of the most important decisions of my life. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, I hear you, but I know you've already thought through it. And I know you've already planned. <laughs> my mom knows me so well. She was like, okay, where are you going? <laughs> okay. So, um, thank you. I know, I know this interview kind of went a little bit all over the place, lots of ups and downs, uh, but I appreciate you sharing your story with us here because just like you found Stephanie's videos, you found mine and you were like, okay, here's somebody who looks like me that's doing, you know, they're talking about the things that I'm trying to find out more about. Like, I think hearing your story is going to do that for somebody else. There's going to be some piece of themselves that they find here and they're like, okay, you know, like that's going to open a door for somebody. So I appreciate that. Um, if, if people want to, you know, follow you along on your wealth walks in the morning and check out your, you know, the content that you're creating now that, now that you've like 
in complete control of your time. <laughs> uh, where can the people find you? You can find me at Money Coach Malika. I am on Instagram under Money Coach Malika, on YouTube under Money Coach Malika, everywhere under Money Coach Malika. But I'm most active now on YouTube since I've discovered the platform and I've learned how to use YouTube. Uh, I'm more active on YouTube in terms of more recent and frequent content. As I mentioned, as I said, Malika's story is very unconventional. And I think there are quite a few lessons we can take away from it. The first being de being delayed is not denied. She mentioned that, you know, at the beginning of her journey into adulthood, she felt like she made a left turn down the wrong road. And that first 10 years was kind of bumpy for her, but ultimately she was able to achieve the life she had dreamed of and then really something far beyond that. And I think there is a lesson for us to take away that just because we hit a bump in the road. Our things are not going the way they're seen to be going for everybody else. Doesn't mean we're never going to have the life that we want. Uh, another takeaway is that, or something, uh, takeaway, something you want to remember is that we don't know other people's lives. We don't know their stories. I'm thinking about uh, that instance where the social worker chose not to speak to her kindly because of assumptions she made about who she was, how she was living her life. That lady didn't know her story and spoke like she did. And you see the impact that the way that made her feel then when she was 19, how it still has an impact on her today. And I think it would do us all well to remember that when we interact with people, we don't know anything beyond what we immediately see. We don't know their secrets. We don't know their hurts. We don't know the things that make them happy. And so we can't generalize. We can't stereotype and assume, oh, I know you. I got your number. We don't know that. So I think we need to remember that when we interact with folks, we have to remember to do so with kindness. And thirdly, money is freedom. Now I've talked about that before on the podcast that freedom ain't free, freedom costs money, but it's also good to remember the freedom that comes with having a solid financial situation, being financially confident. You kept hearing Malika say over and over, when you're FI, when you're financially independent, you are willing to ask for things. You are willing to, you know, be bold, to speak up for yourself in such a way because people can't dangle your financial safety over your head when you control your own money. And that is a really important thing to remember. That's why I do the work that I do. That is why she does the work that she does is to help Black women be in a situation where they have the money they need 
in order to become free. I hope y'all enjoyed my conversation with Malika. Thank you so much for your continued support. Um, if you are watching this on YouTube, please give this video a like. If there is a Black woman in your life who you think could benefit from hearing Malika's story, please share this episode. If you are watching, if you're listening to this on a podcatcher, uh, if you can subscribe, if you can leave a review of the podcast, that helps with the visibility of the show and hopefully helps get the show into the feed of somebody else who could benefit from it. Um, until next time.